Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast, where people and ideas intersect. I'm Alexandra Darnov, a graduate student in biomedical engineering. This episode focuses on overactive bladder and my research into saphenous nerve stimulation for treating overactive bladder symptoms. I've invited Kim Kierens here, a senior fellow at Massey College, to join me in this conversation. So hello. Hi. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So overactive bladder, it's, um, it's a pretty big problem in Canada. So about 14 to 18% of the population has it. And uh, this is increased with age, uh, partly due to menopause, but other issues as well. It also costs us a lot of money. So really? Yeah, I, I got the Canadian healthcare system. Direct costs are over $350 million each year. So what is actually an overactive bladder? It's a symptoms-based uh, diagnosis, so there's a few different things that it could be. One is if you're urinating more than eight times a day, uh, if you go more than once a night, feelings of urgency or um, urge incontinence. Um, so sometimes that can include um, nocturia. Or, but yeah, so that, that's kind of what it is. Essentially, you go more than others, uh, or you feel the need to go. So nocturia is uh, at, when you do it most at night? Yes. If you're going more than once a night, usually that's a sign that you might start having overactive bladder uh, symptoms. And treatment can depend on how severe these symptoms are. So what's the average, like how many times a day do you go to the bathroom? I think it depends on the person and what they're doing. But yeah, usually like four to six times is a pretty normal amount. You might be getting in at higher. Um, Obviously, if you know, you're know you intaking a lot of water, you're going to have a higher amount, and that's part of um, some behavioral changes that occur that you can modify um, your symptoms that way. So is it a physiological kind of um, condition, or is it um, psychological? That's a good question. So I think it's, it's multiple things. Um, there's two different systems, essentially. One is under our control, somatic, and then the other one is autonomic, I not under our control. The bladder is interesting because it has all these different signals coming in, going up to the brain, different reflexes, all that. We can control some stuff and the physiological side, not as much, uh, which makes it really hard to also find a way to treat it. It makes me want to do my Kegel exercises more talking to you. Well, yeah, that's, that's part of it. Um, the earlier you start uh, preventative measures, the, the higher the chance it won't get worse. So preventative measures include Kegel and... Yeah, so it could be Kegel exercises, um, could be you know eliminating certain foods, so spicy foods, citrus foods, um, or juices, um, limiting your water intake. Coffee is an obvious one. Milk I found very weird that you're not supposed to have as much of. Mm. Um, soda makes sense, and then a big one is stressors. That's what gets me. Okay, I'll, I'll admit it on air <laughs> that. When I'm stressed, I'm up and down like a yo-yo. Yeah, I even have it at times. I'm, I, I get, I get the the reflex. You, you're anxious. Every little thing that's going on in your body, you're gonna notice, and then usually that means you're gonna have to go a bit more often. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people that get stress, uh, urge incontinence, um, I wanting to go because of stress, um, get it a lot of times at nighttime too. So it's not even just through the daytime, they'll be waking up every few hours in the night. Um, if you look, if you could monitor your stress, it probably has a lot of relation to that. There needs to be a more holistic treatment for sure. 
So eliminating foods, uh, Kegel exercises, um, exercise, would that help at all? Um, yeah, in, in a sense of being able to set yourself, uh, yourself up in a, um, a regular schedule. So part of it could be exercise, having a good nighttime routine. Um, and then for some people, they actually schedule when they go. And although it's not the easiest thing to do, if you say, okay, every two hours, I'm gonna go to the washroom and stick to it. Um, that's apparently been very helpful for mm. um, dealing with overactive bladder symptoms. Uh, so if you're finding you have to go every hour, let's say, it, depending on how severe the case is, just adding extra 15 minutes every day between those delays, if you can, um, and just going from there, that's a really big one. Uh, they've also, there's been some uh, urologists that have recommended uh, double urination before you go to bed. What's that mean? You just go twice, just in case. If yeah. nothing happens, nothing happens. Um, yeah, it's, it's weird talking about because it it's so stigmatized. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I, here I am talking on a podcast that will live forever. I, <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that when I'm at the dining hall table and I mention it, everybody's interested in this topic. Why are we so interested in it? I mean, these are young people, not people in my age group, which is oh, plus 60. Well, I think it, it occurs to more people than you think. Um, I think it's going to be a bigger topic, obviously, if you're a bit older, but yeah, I mean, people, especially at Massey, are, are stressed out and probably have issues with it that they don't want to talk about. Um, yeah, and I think having someone to discuss something that's normally stigmatized is pretty rare in that case, so maybe that's why. So are there medications that people try or, or procedures? I mean, because I guess it can get pretty bad, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, some people, I mean, they're not living lives as they want to. And yeah, you can definitely go further in that. The first option would be, like I said, the behavioral methods. Um, some people use diapers as well. If you think talking on a podcast is stigmatized, diapers are so much worse on that end. Um, and they're not covered by healthcare. Um, at least in Canada. So those are kind of the first line ones. The second lines are usually medications. So there's two main ones. Um, one is anticholinergic, and then the other one, beta-3 agonists. It doesn't particularly matter the, the category of it. Um, the issue is there's a lot of side effects. So with the first one, um, it affects the entire body. So you end up with like dry mouth and just you might actually get worse symptoms in the rest of your body than it's worth to be able to treat the, the symptoms. Uh, the second one, the beta-3 agonist, uh, so it actually activates your sympathetic system. It's your the fight in your fight or flight. The bigger issue is a lot of people who have overactive bladder symptoms are overweight and um, are oftentimes have, uh, are hypertensive. Um, and these people can't take those medications because it'll just increase that blood pressure and so you end up with like a 30% population that can't even take these medications because it'll make their other conditions so much worse that it, it's not worth it. So it, it's not like the best treatment option at the moment. Mm -hmm. A third one is um, Botox. Mm. Not, not like cheek filler Botox, just so we're clear. I mean, same, they're using the same substances. Um, but yeah, they'll essentially, um, insert it into your bladder and then on the bladder walls give you a little bit of Botox. I think it's usually like 20 or so jabs. There's no pain until you start hitting the top of the bladder and then you have a couple jabs that you can feel and don't feel great. 
Mm. Um, or you can go under general anesthetic, but that's extremely expensive. You can't do it at you know your local walk-in. Um, um, How long does it last, or does it have to be done again and again? Yeah, so that's that's the thing with Botox. It's three to six months, mm. uh, depending on the person, uh, and you, you have to start increasing doses at some point. A lot of people that like it stay on it forever, um, but a lot of people just end up saying, you know what, this isn't this isn't worth it. I'm going to try to do a different treatment, uh, and so that's kind of where medical devices come in. And that's they, what you're working on now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of my area. That's you're, that's why I like some. Medical devices uh, have been established and are used commercially. The fully, fully invasive ones are implantable devices. Um, they'll stimulate um, like the sacral nerve or some are looking at the pudendal nerve, a few, a few other options. Um, these are all nerves that are connected to the bladder. Um, so you'll do a surgery, implant this device, um, It'll usually be electrodes that attach to the nerve, and then the actual device itself uh, is located somewhere in, in the buttocks area. Um, and so those can last 10 to 20 years. A lot of people are really happy with that. Uh, the issue is finding someone to do it, and whether, especially in Canada, our healthcare uh, system is willing to pay for it. Uh, so we have a really good doctor um, in Toronto I think Toronto Western um, that implants quite a few of these devices, but outside of that, it's it's pretty. You, you only get a handful a year, um, and there's a lot of people, as as we mentioned, that that need it. So it, it's a great idea, but a lot of effort for a treatment that isn't accessible to everybody. Yeah, yeah, essentially, essentially, yeah. it's not accessible. It's, it's extremely expensive and takes time. Other options are a bit less invasive. Um, there's percutaneous nerve stimulation, so that's using uh, like really thin needles. And the origin of that's really cool, so um, way, way back, um, people were doing acupuncture. They found that helped with overactive bladder treatments. Like this is before we had names for it or anything like that. And so at some point someone was like, all right, let's, let's actually try this. Let's see if we, if we put some needles in and then add some electrical stimulation to it well, these people feel better. Turns out they did. Um, and so I think since the early 2000s, we've um, had medical devices that run on that. And where'd you put them? It, it depends on the person. So a really big one right now is uh, tibial nerve stimulation. So the tibial nerve is um, in your lower leg. And so it's um, is that just in the back. So yeah. a lot of times uh, they'll do it kind of on the inner slash back surface near where your ankle is. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, they'll put a needle in there and then another electrode and stimulate it for about 30 minutes, let's say, uh, once a week for 12 weeks. And that's the initial treatment. And usually you'll get some relief of symptoms at that point. The issue is you do have to still come into the clinic. You need someone who's able to do this. Mm -hmm. It's not a, you know, your average Joe just can't come in and put a needle in themselves and hope for the best. Um, and so there, there are a few issues there as well. And coming in every week is a lot to ask from someone. Again, a device that does work with varying degrees of success depending on the person. But it's still invasive in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely, you're using needles. It's still hard to convince people to want to do that. Um, and so they started looking at um, just transcutaneous nerve stimulation as well. 
and that's when you just put um, those hydrogel electrodes on top of you, uh, just on the skin. And again, some success rates are good. Um, people can take these devices home. The issue with that, especially with the tibial nerve, is all the times um, it's honestly sometimes hard to find where you're going to be stimulating it. Second, because you're stimulating this tibial nerve, it's, um, it's actually attached to the big muscles in your calves. So the entire time you're just kind of jolting your leg uh, by the pulse. Um, so it gets really, really tiring. Uh, it's, it's just not very comfortable for some people, so they'll just stop it. Um, it would normally be a same treatment method, so 30 minutes a week and then 12 weeks of that and continue as needed. Balancing patient needs versus patient's expectations are really hard. I think, mm. especially with medical devices. You're listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Alexander Doinov, a researcher in biomedical engineering, focusing in saphenous nerve stimulation for overactive bladder treatment. In this episode, we're talking about overactive bladder, what it is, and how to treat it. So, kind of touching on my area, turns out when you stimulate that tibial nerve, um, there's coactivation of another nerve nearby uh, called the saphenous nerve. And so that one's a bit more on the inner front side of your leg. So it follows that bone that you feel when you... Oh, um, down the front? Oh, down yeah, the front? Yeah, your shin. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it follows that one along. Uh, it's really close to the skin, uh, and it's not attached to any muscles. So when you stimulate that nerve, you just kind of feel like a tingly feeling going on your inner leg. Uh, and so they did a few studies. Turns out these two nerves are coactivated a lot of the time when you stimulate the tibial nerve. Um, and so a few people decided, hey, you know, let's let's just try the saphenous nerve out. They still did percutaneous. They didn't they didn't do transcutaneous yet. So it's per, percutaneous. Kind percutaneous of is is uh, the needle one. Okay. Then transcutaneous is the just the surface electrodes. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they tried it with needles. Patients were were happy. They had decreased symptoms. Um, they followed this diary or journal. Yeah, all of them said, hey, this this actually works. And so a few labs decided, hey, let's, let's actually look into this and what we can do with it. Uh, and that kind of brings me to my work. So I worked with a company out in, in Boston, also a few, um, or in a lab here at U of T um, that deals with saphenous nerve stimulation, um, but look, looking at it transcutaneously, so with those surface electrodes. And um, other students have found, you know, we can stimulate the nerve, um, this is what you feel when you stimulate it. Um, X, Y, and Z person said they felt that tingling. Um, and that's that's great. Um, I wanted to kind of take it a bit further than that. Um, I'm on the end of, okay, can we confirm what's going on is actually a signal? Because um, saying, hey, do you feel tingling might not be... You're almost planting an idea, aren't you? <laughs> kind of, yeah. And some people don't feel it, so there's also that. Um, Especially if they have other issues like edema, they, they might not feel um, the tingling. Because it's, it's in that lower leg, it's where all that buildup is going to occur. Um, so it's, it's really hard to pinpoint in that case. Um, so I figured, okay, let's, let's see if we can record a neural signal. Um, that, so when we stimulate it, the signal goes down, and then can we can record it further down the leg? Uh, we found, yeah, yeah, we could. Um, we don't need to even use needles. We can use just regular electrodes uh, when we're recording it, um, which was great news for us. Uh, kind of checked off that box, but a lot of people had already done that. Um, they had shown, yeah, of course you can record a neural signal. 
we've done this in other labs for different reasons. And so I wanted to see, well, how can we, how can we see this uh, signal? Or how can we enlarge the signal? How can we make sure that um, we're applying enough stimulation, but not too much that the person is uncomfortable? Um, so I started looking at different configurations of electrodes. So most people, or most recording for electrodes, use bipolar configurations, which means you use two electrodes. You look at the signal at one, look at it from the other, subtract the two. Uh, that works great, and you can usually get a pretty clear signal. Um, I wanted to see if we did it with three electrodes and with four electrodes, whether that would be different. So each has their own formula of, way of doing things. We looked at so tripolar configurations, which um, essentially you take the neural signals from the two outside electrodes and then take the average of that and then subtract it from the middle one. So it's if you have two bipolar ones. Uh, the issue with that was that we couldn't get any signal directionality then. Um, so we didn't know what was going on in that case. It, it's not that big of an issue with um, the saphenous nerve because it's just based for what's called sensory nerves. Um, but it, if you applied it to a different nerve, it might not work as well. Um, and I, I won't delve into the details because it's going to get way too sciencey, <laughs> and there's no need for that. Um, so the other option was the tetrapolar, uh, which essentially took two tripolars and subtracted those two. And we found that was that was the best one. We were able to see a signal um, at a lower um, current amplitude. So you have to inject a certain amount of current into uh, the person. And we found you could actually see that signal with lower amounts, meaning probably we're stimulating the nerve even without having to increase it to its maximum level. Because mm. um, a lot of times, I should have mentioned this before, when you're stimulating nerves um, through these medical devices, you'll start at the lowest setting and go up until you reach um, or increase the amount of current you're putting in until you reach the point of like, okay, this person can't handle anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, either their muscle feels really tense if you're doing it off like, let's say, a tibial nerve, or like the tingling is just kind of too painful. Mm -hmm. um, turns out, yeah, we probably don't actually need to go up to that maximum level, uh, which is great. So that was like a big bonus. And we also saw that when we did put it up to, let's say, max, we were able to see a, a much larger signal um, using that tetrapolar configuration than any other kind, including bipolar. That kind of told us that, okay, we're getting, we're getting a large signal. We have lower noise levels when we do that. Um, so there's a higher probability that we'll actually see something. In that overall, it kind of confirms to us, okay, yeah, we, we're stimulating the nerve. It's, it's actually doing what it's supposed to. You'll probably get some treatment out of this uh, versus, you know, if someone says, I don't really feel tingling, we still run it through them for 12 mm. weeks and then they feel nothing. Is it possible when you're, when you're stimulating a nerve for the nerve to become desensitized to the stimulation? Yeah, so that's why they, they don't recommend doing it much, much more than that. Um, a few companies have tried doing like a condensed version three times a week instead of once a week mm -hmm. and just condensing that uh, from 12 weeks um, to four weeks. And they've shown comparable results. 
And that's, you know, company research, so how stringent is it is a different question. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there could be issues of sensitiza- sensitization. Um, and so having it, uh, running it on a lower current amplitude is better because then you're not going to get, um, you, you decrease your risk of sensitization, decrease your risk of um, any kind of neural damage, anything like that, right? Which could occur if you're putting in too much current on, a, on the electrode. What excites you about your research? Um, honestly, it just every every time I mention it, it I can see it's actually you know useful for something. Um, pretty much everyone I know knows someone or has overactive bladder symptoms. Um, I mean, I don't. I've never been one to really shy from the whole idea of st- stigma for certain stuff. Um, so it it just makes me really happy to see that you know people are willing to talk about it more and that it's it's helping out people, to be honest. Um, when I first started you know, applying to grad schools and everything, I, I wasn't 100% sure where I wanted to go in terms of diseases or illnesses or anything like that. Um, but yeah, when I saw this lab, I, I started talking with, uh, with my mom and right away she was like, oh, please do that. I would love that. Like, I, I need some treatment as well. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's pretty, I've, I've never had her say anything like that before. <laughs> I mean, not that she's not supportive, it just, um, she was so excited for me to do this kind of research. Um, and yeah, a lot of times when I've talked to people, even before I went into it, they were like, wow, that's, that's great. This will be, this is an area that's really important to look at. And a lot of people are dealing with it, or either directly or peripherally. And I think because of the stigma, a lot of people think they're the only ones, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think people realize also that like these symptoms can get better, it can get worse. Yeah, when I'm stressed, I'm, I'm going at night. Uh, the more we talk about it, the better it'll get. In a bit more of a holistic sense, it's also a way of measuring stress for a lot of people. So the more you're aware of how your body's working, uh, the better the better that is. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's exciting. And I mean, working in medical devices in general, um, it's cool seeing how people cr- progress and how quickly things progress. Everyone's wanting to do the next big thing. Um, so what's your, what, what's your next step? Good question. Uh, graduate, that would be great. Um, and then, yeah, hopefully, hopefully continue within kind of that neuromodulation field. Um, I think I'd like to do some industry work and really see the, the application of all this research. Um, like I love academia and I, I love my research, but it's, I think it's really, really important to understand that it, it must go into the world. That is, that is the ultimate goal is that we have to bring this research into the, into the world and, and get used. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to be part of, of that gap of, or bridge that gap of research to the actual patient or person that's going to be using it. I'm Alexandre Doinov, a researcher in biomedical engineering, focusing in saphenous nerve stimulation for overactive bladder treatment. You've been listening to the JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.